Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Loic Tassel, the Europe president for Procter & Gamble. He'll talk about what he's learned in his near 33 years at the company and what it's like to pioneer products that could help the world live more sustainably. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Over the last few years, the expectation and demands on sustainability from our bosses, the consumers, has risen exponentially. Lobeck Tassel is the Europe president of Procter & Gamble, or P&G, one of the largest consumer goods companies in the world. This company touches the lives of 5 billion customers every year. And to better mitigate its impact on the climate, the company has committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2030 and has been redesigning everything from its products to its supply chains. We feel the pressure. We feel the pressure to improve our operations. Loic's region is responsible for nearly one quarter of total company sales and profit and helps develop and pioneer environmentally friendly products. Such inventions rethink how we buy our shampoo and even the temperature we use for our laundry. Europe is a lighthouse for many of the early identifications of big societal problems and solutions. Loic has worked for P&G since he was 21 years old, in offices from Stockholm to Casablanca. He'll explain how those experiences help him understand different needs across different cultures and environments. There is no science. The secret is every time to try and balance what is right to do from a business angle with the sensitivity to the local culture. And he'll also explain the importance of balancing listening and leading, a key skill as P&G works with everyone from retailers to suppliers to consumers to develop better habits for the planet. If you're doing well on sustainability, if you're progressive, on diversity, you're going to become one of our preferred suppliers. He'll dig into all of this, but first, he'll take us through P&G's big picture vision for sustainability. We feel the pressure. We feel the pressure to improve our operations. And we've been very public for quite a few years already on this topic. We want to decarbonize our supply chain. That's the big declaration of intent. And I will quote two examples on how we're getting that done, because that's very important. The first one is this calendar year 21, and it's a little bit of a teaser today. We will be having 100% renewable electricity used in our 32 plants in Europe, which is a big ambition. And for this, rather than rely on other sources of electricity, we are working, for instance, with a company in Spain who is literally building, as we speak, solar panels and windmills that are going to be producing electricity for our plants. So this is a big progress, 100% renewable electricity for all our plants in Europe, not in five or 10 years. Signed, effective already as of this year. The second one is around a simple idea, but a very powerful one, which is one company, whatever the size, cannot do it all alone. We need partnership. We need partnership with suppliers. We need partnership with retailers. 
And when it comes to transportation, just to name one example, we're literally started since few days a test with Carrefour Spain, so one of our large retailer partner in a large country, where we are using mega truck that cuts in half the CO2 emissions per kg of diaper or laundry. Just as examples, but it's always one clear intent. Completely decarbonize the impact of our supply chain before 2030. Now, that requires a lot of invention, partnership, as I've said, but that is still the smallest part of the program we can make. The biggest part lies in improving our packaging and coaching, guiding consumers to make a better use of our product in their homes. How does it come to life? We have changed the packaging of our Gillette razors, the famous Gillette razors, from a hard plastic, and if you've bought some, you know, you had to use the knife and cut it, and it's difficult, and it feels like it's a lot of waste you're then throwing in your dustbin at home. So, entire packaging from plastic to 100% recyclable carton. That requires no effort from consumers, but it's a great benefit from them. No plastic, 100% recyclable carton. So that's one area, and we're having a long list of innovation in this area, where we're giving consumers simply a more sustainable product. The other equally important point is then to guide consumers to make a more sustainable use of our product. When you and I are doing your laundry, which does happen several times a week, 60% of the electricity used by your laundry machine is for heating the water. And you may have seen, we have now on, online and on TV communication in partnership with the National Geographic Institute, very well known, highly trusted endorser, where we are promoting the use of 30 degrees which is low, because sometimes it goes 40, 50, 60, 70, 30 degrees temperatures only to limit the amount of electricity used by your washing machine. And that's where we feel we're having equal responsibility, which is offer consumers more sustainable product, but also continue to educate them to make a better, more sustainable use of our product. What capabilities need to be built to arrive at those recommendations for consumers? It's almost a philosophy, I would say, right? Which is, in our world, a consumer is boss. And whilst you're having, you know, events where you're having a vote every four years or every five years to elect a new president, consumer in our industry, millions of them, are voting every single day of every single week, okay? So when you're starting with that mantra, the definition of the task gets easier. Consumer is our boss. We need to listen to what he or she wants from our product. And over the last few years, the expectation and demands on sustainability from our bosses, the consumers, has risen exponentially, exponentially all over the world, but certainly here very much in our beautiful Europe region. On average, if you ask consumers today, randomly on the streets of any country in Europe, half would say, I am choosing products based on their performance, like before, on their price, like before, but also today on their sustainability profile. So with that in mind, we are briefing our R&D 
and purchasing partners to invent the wide level of product benefits and technical solutions with thousands of suppliers, encouraging them to say, that's the brief we have received. If you want to keep vote, getting their vote today, tomorrow, next semester, next year, we'll need to make those internal changes. We're a big plastic user. 100% of our plastic done with recyclable plastic, no later than 2030. And I'm pushing my team to get that done by 2025 in Europe because that's what our bosses want from us. When it comes to things like the supply chain, which is sort of invisible to retailers, who is the boss there? Is that driven more internally? Or are you seeing that sort of asked for by the people you're working with in logistics? Now, what is the push and the pull there? The push comes from multiple stakeholders. Okay, It does indeed, as we said, comes from consumers. It does come from retailers. It does come from NGOs, sometimes extremely active. And then there is a big one that's coming our way, which is the famous European Green Deal which is going to affect many of us for the better, for the better, okay? In new round of legislation coming maybe as of this summer, and it's going to be staggered over next few years from the European Union. And then because of the weight of the European Union, it quickly moves into UK, now a little bit outside, but then it will expand in Turkey, in Russia. It will probably find its way in the US. And so therefore it's traveling. Our intent... First, is always to comply with the law. That's obvious. But our intent is deeper and bigger, is to anticipate, anticipate upcoming legislation by making so great progress on our own, as requested by those other stakeholders, that whatever comes our way from a legislative standpoint, we're at least at par, ideally ahead of the game. And I think that's always very important. And that's where I say sometimes Europe in a global world plays a leading role. If you refer back to what we're calling GDPR, which is the, you know, the proxy name for our audience for that data privacy. Initially, there was a bit of pushback in a global, quite American led company saying, Oh my God, another bureaucratic text coming from EU. That's going to be a pain. Actually, few months after it's been put in motion, many other countries on the world say, hmm, that actually sounds like a good idea. Data privacy in a digital world has more benefit than downsides. And the first companies who applied it very well, like we do, can still operate in full respect of consumer privacy, but still get enough data to handle and create value with our retail partners. And I'm saying this because I think there is, there is an important global lesson here, which is Europe is a lighthouse for many of the early identifications of big societal problems and solutions. The role of that lighthouse is super important for the globe. And my absolute conviction on the small topic in the grand scheme of things of data privacy and on a huge topic of European Green Deal that we're all going to be working for a better world, largely thanks to Europe as a source of inspiration. Is it fair to say that Europe is a sort of testing ground for these more sustainable products, that they're rolled out there first? You're thinking about it absolutely right. And even beyond the world of Europe being a testing ground, I prefer to think and talk of Europe as a leading ground. For instance, on the Gillette packaging 
changes I was uh, explaining before, from plastic to recyclable carton. Europe is the first place, the leading place, where PNG is qualifying, inventing, designing, and then on the marketplace testing some of those new products. And it follows a simple and powerful ideas. Those big societal trends are born in Europe and then travel later. If we detect them early and address them early on in Europe to win, <clears throat> absolute conviction that we will have as the global company a competitive edge, a large competitive edge in many other parts of the world. Because as you very easily can imagine, changing the packaging this way on Gillette or bringing that technology to wash at 30 degrees on Ariel laundry as well as 60 degrees requires invention. And therefore, to get those inventions, you need as a global company to consciously decide to allocate more than fair share amount of R&D resources to invent those new products for us in Europe. And then the return on investments come from having those innovations in Europe reaching global scale, which I think is a very virtuous cycle we're in right now that elevates the role of Europe to that leading ground that I'm keen to describe. What's something that you were able to test out in Europe that stands out for you? Uh, something that you might not have been able to test out in any other market? Many, so I'm going to try to be selective. The first one, um, I mean, has been, has been designed, created, launched in France first, ahead of any other countries in the world. And that was, we call it, it's on the Pampers, Bay, Baby Care, di Diapers product. And we've called it Harmony, with 100% completely pure ingredients. Why the term harmony and a white background and, you know, very, very reassuring colors and driven by an extreme desire in some countries, namely France, to be 100% reassured that the quality of all of the ingredients you're putting on the skin or in contact with your baby are like 200% safe, okay? Uh, which is a preoccupation that honestly not all mothers do have yet on earth, but is 100% required by French mothers. The success of that innovation, which again, for us, think of us as very global, but quite US-centric company, decided to make such a big innovation on our largest brand sold anywhere on earth is quite a big move. It's quite a big declaration of intent. That success in France has led to the product being launched in many markets all over Europe and recently with success in the US. But it all started by a consumer insight that was born in France, a product solution invented for the French market that then got reapplied, which I think is, is a very powerful answer to your question. P&G is changing packaging and products, but it's also nudging new behaviors and changing how people use those products. Can you talk about what the process is to change behaviors? I'm going to take a very simple example here. Shampoos. You know, shampoos. Everyone is buying several bottles a year, and it so happens all of those bottles are made of plastic. And we're moving them steadily from virgin plastic, which then has a risk, of not being the most sustainable solution, of course, to then partly recyclable plastic and then 100% recyclable plastic as we're getting more and more recyclable plastic available for our industry. But then consumers kept telling us, 
that's good, but that's not good enough. So someone then had an idea, which is not necessarily rocket science. What if we invent a solution that is a bottle that is not of recyclable plastic, but like an aluminum bottle that then you can reuse time and time and time again. And we're giving you a refillable pouch. Very disruptive, completely new in our industry. It took us six months to find external suppliers that can give us an aluminum bottle, that can give us a refillable pouch that is 100% biodegradable. And now since few weeks, we've put some of those first products on the marketplace. I don't know yet if that's going to be a success. Okay, We are testing it in different parts of Europe, so in different customers to see what the, what the solution will be. So, I'm, so, so that's the example. But it keeps always on the same idea. We listen to the consumer till they're telling us they're 100% happy. Then we look for ways for scale and broad reapplication all over Europe. Has there been a problem that everyone agreed need to be solved, but no one had a good sense for how the consumer could be nudged or how that could be done at scale? There is a shortage of recyclable plastic. Okay. There is abundance of virgin plastic, which is not the ideal way forward. And there is a shortage of recyclable plastic because it takes enormous amount of time. And we are only a small player in that industry. You need to have a recyclable point in your village. Then it needs to be collected. And then it used to be industrialized to sort, sort it out. Okay. So we don't have as a individual player, we don't yet have today the full solution to having 100% of our plastic available in the great form of recyclable plastic. So we're looking for partnering. We're looking for partnering with other industries. We're looking for partnering with municipalities, cities, states to have, you know, financing on the collection of the plastic. Uh, it's a big undertaking that will probably keep not just us, but the entire industry very busy for the next five years because we haven't cracked in every country that full model of collection yet today. And I'm sure individually we can relate to that. I often say when I'm living in my home here in Switzerland, I have nine different bags at home for items I go on Saturday to recycle in the right spots. When I'm in my flat in Paris, I have two bags. I don't know if nine is right, but I'm for sure know that two is not enough. You've been working in markets all over the world for P&G. How does this help you understand what different markets will need when it comes to nudging those new behaviors and driving those new habits? We're having very strong culture, very strong values in PNG, and we're having very similar ways of operating in all over the world. Okay. Whether you're in Latin America, Asia, the 55 countries that we have here in Europe, you operate within the same set of boundaries, principles, value and processes making the move of one place to another relatively easy. The equally important side is there is a very strong cultural aspect that is specific to each country that you have as a leader to adapt to. And that's equally true inside as it is outside. A simple, a couple of simple examples. Okay. After a few years in France, I moved from one of my first assignments in the Nordic countries. Beautiful. Inside and outside, there is a great value being driven or being put as making decisions on a consensus basis. Okay. 
So as a newcomer, if you're trying to use your swipe to get some decision made or to, you know, have a new level of partnership with, a, with an outside partner like a retailer, you're wrong. Okay. You need to take the time and the listening and all of the energy to drive to a consensus decisions that will typically take a little bit more time. But then once the decision is collect, almost collectively done, almost very democratically done, the chances of it being very well executed inside or outside are much greater. So it is worth doing that extra mile. Okay. After that uh, three years in Sweden, I then moved to uh, Morocco, Algeria, a very different set of countries, a lovely uh, Casablanca. And here, the expectations inside and outside are also very different. As the leader, you're expected to have all of the answers. The fundamental expectation is you're going to be telling your colleagues and sometimes even outside partners what to do. And you have to be a strong, assertive leader or you lose credibility. Okay. The secret is every time to try and balance what is right to do from a business angle with the sensitivity to the local culture. There is no science. There is no book recipe on this, but it's a little bit of an art that you develop fundamentally by always the same powerful idea, which is you listen to the voice of the experts you're having locally inside the company, outside the company. You get impregnated with the local culture and you adapt to it. You spend a lot of time with suppliers. What does that look like? I would say what has evolved is initially a lot of the discussion were, I would say, almost exclusively focused on pricing and reliability of the supply chain. Are you able to deliver the quantities promised on time with the right level of quantity for the price we have agreed? However, over the last two or three years, another critical point of the discussion has emerged, which is our desire to help our suppliers also get more sustainable in their operations. It's not enough to tell them, be green, we need to work in partnership with them to provide solutions, to look for maybe sometimes outside ideas. So this is not over. This is not done. It's not a two-year journey. For some, it's going to be a decade. But I think what does matter, and we're very clear on this, that's what that's one of my opening statements to all suppliers. We want you to be very cost competitive. We will help you make your operation sustainable as well. And it's not one or the other, but we're going to have to make progress together on those two areas if you and I want to be, you know, in business for the future, which typically resonates well, because again, putting undue pressure on suppliers without coaching or helping is not going to be a productive way forward. What makes that successful? So people know you're not dictating terms, but you're teaming and you're in it with them. I mean, very, very clearly by, number one, being very public on our ambitions. PNG, you know, has a long tradition and is very committed to make sure that across all levels, we have a very diverse workforce. We have made a very public commitment to say, 2025, half of our leadership positions in PNG Europe, across all categories, all countries, all functions, will be led by female talents. But we're not stopping there. So we're working with our suppliers 
to try and then get moving along similar thinking on sustainability and we're having a clear program that says if you're doing well on sustainability, if you're progressive on diversity, especially female talents at all levels, you're going to become one of our preferred suppliers. Once you have that powerful commitment, it's easier than to ask a, a, a partner, and that can be a retailer, that can be a supplier of whatever, what's your plan? What are the gaps you see? And based on our experience, and it can be grooming talent, it can be managing special assignment, it can be culture workshops, whatever. What do you see as capability or culture gaps in your company that we can offer you based on our, based on our learnings of the last years? That to me is, is the foundation of a new higher level of partnership that is still deeply rooted in tough, intense commercial discussions. That is not changing, but is elevating it. And it all starts from our public commitments, our learning, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're failure, but we are very open to share them and to dialogue with whoever is interested in our industry to learn and improve from that. You've been at P&G since you were 21. How have you changed as a leader in that time? It's a frightening thought, isn't it, right? But it's still very true. <laughs> I mean, PNG is largely a built-from-within company. You're starting at the bottom and then pending skills and experience, you're moving the ladder one by one. So, with that in mind, the biggest change of, uh, that I've experienced, like many other leaders, is, put it very simple terms, moving from doing things yourself to getting things done by others often add with a smile, with a smile, because that, that smile is important on the long run as well. And for this to happen, at least my modest experience is, it's based on three things. The first one is definition of success. That's the fundamental role of a, of a leader defining success. And my experience here is, it needs to be done on very simple measures that do capture the essence of the outcome not the activity, not the process. Okay. And, and well, I pay super attention in every one of my job to make sure that we are clear on activity, which is nice, versus result, which matters. So that's, that's the first element of philosophy. Okay. I'm not here to reward activity or hard work. I'm here to reward results. And we're having a very clear definition of our business that is for us only three simple measures. The net sales, the profit in dollars, and the free cash flow. And every year, we're tracking those key measures. Not 10, not 20, not 100. We're tracking those three. So that's ultimate crispness in definition of success. Number two is construct a business model that works for all stakeholders. The construction of the business model we have made for PNG Europe is category growth through premiumization. That's the core of our business model. And that's where it links to listening to the consumer, our boss. That's where it links to innovation. Sustainability as an outcome, which is our role is to offer better performing, also higher priced products that consumers are delighted with, which then creates value for us as the company does meet the need of consumer and by growing the size of the category in which we operate, 
through innovation and premiumization, we're also creating value for our retail partners. And step number three is then the final polishing touch, which is the most important. Trust your people. Trust your people. I'm telling them, I'm not a policeman. Okay, I'm not after reviewing, checking, assessing your work. I don't need scorecard. I trust you. You are the experts of that category, of that country, of that customer team, of that R&D team. You define the framework. You define success. Large, full, enormous autonomy, trust, and empowerment of your people is then the polishing touch to make this It's tough to let go. It's difficult to let go. The idea that you can be doing individually better than the 32,000 colleagues you have around you is madness, absolute madness. You have to trust, empower them, but then create a strategic framework that is the definition of success and the business model. People can have long careers at P&G, as you yourself have demonstrated. Do you have a message to young people who might not have thought that a long career at one company could be an option? I'm very frequently asked that, and I have a simple answer, which is stay curious. If you're not staying curious, you're going to become an obsolete dinosaur very, very quickly. So stay curious. And what does it mean? It means... Try to ask questions on your individual business, your brand, your customer, your country, but also broad questions. What's going on on the other brands? What is competition doing? What's going on on e-commerce in China? What is the European Grill Deal going to look like? Stay curious every day. Nothing could be more far away from the truth than the idea that once you've made it through a large company, you can stop learning. And if you do that, you have probably a high chance of succeeding. Otherwise, you'll become obsolete. How do you stay curious? I stay curious with two sets of activities. I'm blessed with five children. Okay, so that's a, that's a large family. So I stay curious by asking them what's on their mind today. And they range from 27 to 18 years old. So, And every, every time there is something they have passion for, I go into it. I've read all of the Harry Potter books when they were in love with Harry Potter. Just as an example, I've watched Game of Thrones because they've told me recently it's the best series they've ever seen. So whatever is hot for them, okay, I get into. So that's which I think, you know, tries to keep me uh, up to date with the younger part of, of today's world. And the second one is I read a lot. I read a lot. I read one or two books a week. Typically, they're not going to be business books, okay? Because I'm, you know, spending enough time on business in the office, not to do that at home. The one I'm reading today is fascinating, okay? It's a biography of Vasco de, de Gama. Uh, he was not a smart businessman. He was not a great diplomat, but he was a hell of a sailor. And he's been the first one to navigate from lovely Portugal to the extreme south of Africa and then discovered India. And it's fascinating because today, when you're looking at your iPhone, you can know everything on the smallest village in Siberia, right? It's, it's, it's one second of your iPhone. But at the time, the mental revolution it was to discover that beyond West Europe, there were other places full of unknowns. I mean, this reading this is a fascinating 
connection with still today the idea that we can learn a lot, discover a lot, that there were mysteries, fascination coming out of this great planet. Um, and that's, in my view, a good way to get intellectually stimulated by the unknown. Is there something in particular that drives you? I mean, you have a responsibility to the suppliers and your teams and you want everything to be successful and run forever. But beyond that, what drives you? The idea that the world we're going to leave to our children, my five one and their grandchildren will be as beautiful as the one we have today. So that's a, that's a strong personal motivation. We would not have had the same conversation 10 years ago. Maybe not even five years ago, to be honest. But I want to be my legacy, the tipping point of having contributed to make PNG not just a great company, which we've been for 180 years, but a great company for the next 180 years by having made that tipping point of ensuring we are doing it in a way that is responsible and sustainable. And I know next five years are going to be critical to make that tipping point from good intent to real business practice. And that's what I'm very keen, whatever happens for my legacy to be here. Did becoming a father of five change how you looked at legacy and leadership? Yes, certainly you have a responsibility, not just point in time, today, right now, this year, this fiscal, the pressure on the numbers to close the year well. You know, yes, I, I do have all of that, okay? And next year will be <laughs> similarly intense. But the idea that you're responsible far out, far out, next generation, generation after generation, that, honestly, I'm not sure I would have had with that level of intensity if I had not been uh, a father of so many. So that's, in my view, I take it as a personal blessing because it does positively impact the responsibility I feel as a leader today. That was Loic Tassel. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and Meet the Leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. And don't miss my colleague, Mark Kane from the center of the fourth industrial revolution in his podcast, In AI We Trust. Here's a sample. Is artificial intelligence your friend or is it your foe? I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. This podcast surveys the global landscape for inspiration and lessons in developing responsible, trustworthy artificial intelligence. From prominent politicians to investigative journalists, from award-winning academics to nationally recognized authors, we interview key players across the globe to bring you the latest developments and most dynamic perspectives on artificial intelligence today. We release new episodes each week, so please subscribe and find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other major platforms. That was Mark Kane of the World Economic Forum's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution with Marion Vogel of Equal AI, all with their new podcast, In AI We Trust. We will return in two weeks, where my guest is Barbara Martin Coppola, IKEA's first chief digital officer. She'll talk about running the digital transition for that 78-year-old company and how certain plans were accelerated during the pandemic. Suddenly, 90% of the stores were closed. We threw all the schedules out, and all these functions were actually suddenly completely focused in getting e right. 
was a huge accelerator for IKEA. The company did invest thousands and thousands of hours in training remotely, and and it worked. Not that it hasn't been intense, but it worked. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Loic Tassel. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.